Lindsay Busiak's father says private detectives and volunteers have zeroed in on five people they believe are suspects in the realtor's murder. Lindsay Busiak was found stabbed to death in a home in Saanich she was showing in February 2008. Despite a massive investigation and a $100,000 reward, Saanich police have yet to make an arrest. That reward has now been withdrawn. Jeff Busiak says in Calgary today the information on the suspects has been shared with Saanich investigators and he now expects an arrest. A News reporter Stephen Andrew has the latest. We have five people that we're targeting. Um, we know uh, who they all are and we know why. The father of Lindsay Buziak says he and a team of volunteers, including a private detective, have been working day and night to find his daughter's killers. He says that work has now paid off, but he's not naming suspects. Well, right now what I'm willing to say is that we believe uh, the people know Lindsay. One person Buziak and his team are not targeting, Lindsay's former boyfriend. Our list of uh, people uh, does not include Jason Zalo. Jeff Buziak's revelation comes nearly two and a half years after his daughter was found stabbed to death in a Saanich home. Investigators believe the realtor was lured to the home by her killers, posing as prospective homebuyers. But solving the murder has been tough for Saanich police. With leads drying up, Lindsay's family and the Greater Victoria Real Estate Board put up a $100,000 reward for information. Three days ago, the family took the reward off the table. Police say the move was not unexpected. It's apparent to our investigators that uh, a monetary uh, st stimulus is not what uh, the person or persons with information in this, uh, in this incident uh, are looking for. If Jeff Buziak's investigation has led to solid leads, the reward money might now be a moot point. Jeff Buziak says he's given some of that information to Sandage investigators and to the U.S. television program Dateline NBC. Sandage police say they don't know when that program is going to air, but they expect it will be sometime later this month. And hoping that that brings uh, this investigation uh, to the public's attention, uh, to a much wider audience, uh, in the hopes that it may assist our investigating detectives. But Jeff Buziak says investigators have the information they need. He expects police to follow up on his leads and make an arrest. And for the people Jeff Buziak believes murdered his daughter, he has this warning. But you can run, but you can't hide. We're, we're there. We're right on you. We know who you are, and it's just a matter of time. You're going to have to take responsibility for your actions. And uh, that day is coming sooner than they think. Lindsay's family, friends, and the team of investigators looking for her killers hope that day is soon. In Victoria, Stephen Andrew, A News. Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a man who just bought 20 pounds of cheese, and now he don't need any toilet paper. <laughs> That's right, man. You got to do what you got to do. That's it. <laughs> tough times call for tough measures, man. Cheese in a shop vac. you good to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I didn't realize I pooped so much till I realized... Don't have much toilet paper. I'm telling just them face-touching things. If it comes up to that, I'm a dead man. That's it. What's going on, Dave? Dude, do you have any shout-outs or anything going on? Uh, we, uh, we ain't got a whole lot of going on, but uh, I would like to give a shout-out to our friend Bridget Dorsey up in Vail, North Carolina. She gave us a pretty good review, and I appreciate that, and give her a little shout-out on our, on our show today. All right. How about you? I uh, just want to remind everyone to, you know, you got time on your hands now. Places are shut down. People aren't working check out our podcast and if you're having to listen to us 
give us a five star rating. It does help our show. It does move us up to the top of the list and helps the cause. Yeah, or a Facebook review, anything. Yeah, anything. Just give us hell, share it. I don't know. Give us a, <laughs> give us a shout out. We sure appreciate it. That's right. All right, Dale. We're going to get into the case this week, and you know we do we do true crime, and it's it every case is totally different. Yep. There's nothing similar about each case. It's, it's so it's so unique. That's what I guess that's what fascinates me about it. Right. And the case we're doing this week is about a Canadian real estate agent named Lindsay Buziak. Buziak. Yes, she was murdered on February the 2nd, 2008. And we're going to get into her case. All right, Lindsay was born on November the 2nd, 1983, to Jeff and Evelyn Buziak. Right, in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. Yes. And she had one sister named Sarah. Now, Dale, in 2008... Lindsay was 24 years old, and she was an aspiring real estate agent. That's what you know. That's what she was wanting to do. She was making a promising career to do this, and they said she had the capacity to do it as far as being popular and caring. She just had a oh yeah, and good looking. Yeah, she was quite cute, very good, and had a very outward demeanor about her. Yeah, and her dad was she was in real estate too, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of like family business. Yeah, yeah, it was. Now Lindsay was in real estate classes and she met ryan zalo yeah and they became good friends and she had been introduced to ryan's mother who owned a remax real estate agent there in victoria yeah she was a big time yeah she was the real estate agent right there and they had another son jason jason zalo right and she had met well she'd been introduced to, to jason through ryan and they seemed to hit it off pretty quick. Yeah, I think he was started hanging around the office a good bit more when she started working there. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, Lindsay was quite cute. She was a good. She was a looker, no doubt about it. We'll right. post we'll post pictures of her and everything that pertains to this episode on our social media account, so everybody can check it out. Now, Lindsay was working for the Remax agent there in Victoria, and in late January two thousand eight. Lindsay received a call from a woman who told Lindsay that she and her husband were looking for a house and they were actually looking for it pretty quick. Yeah. They had to relocate because of jobs and, and they had to be in a house within just a couple of days ready to move in. Yeah. They wanted a nice house, like three bedroom, very specific what they wanted. Three bedrooms, three baths, extra living quarters for a nanny. And their budget was just about a million dollars. So it was a very up, scale house they were looking for right big commission house and and according to Lindsay, the caller had a foreign accent yeah and she really couldn't place it whether it it was spanish or if it was not but she said it was a foreign accent yeah almost like it was a fake mexican accent i think that's how she described it yeah and she like dale said she even she even thought that she did it to conceal her identity in a way and she even told that to her father and even jason that she felt something was up, yeah. Yeah, unnerved about it. The phone call that she received was on her personal cell phone. Right, which was strange. Yeah, it wasn't the, through the company phone or the company office. It was through her cell phone. But some of her listings even had her personal cell phone on it, so that could have been it. But she asked the woman how she got her number, and the woman told her it was through a previous client. Right. And Lindsay even tried calling that client to 
find out how she knew her, get some details about her, but she happened to be out of town during that time. and Which is weird to me. So what does that matter? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> still had cell phones. Yeah. I don't know. It's just strange. But that's this a, was this, that's strange uh, number two. <laughs> yeah, this was 2008. So, yeah, I don't know. Unless she was just out of the country or out of somewhere where there was no cell phone signal. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Now, there's one thing that I don't get about this. Lindsay told her boyfriend, Jason Zalo, and her father, Jeff, about the call and her concerns, and Lindsay found a suitable property. Yeah, pretty quick, actually. But this is something we're going to discuss a little bit later. If Lindsay found the property or this was a property that the client found that she wanted Lindsay to show because the house that they were going to look at belonged to another agent another company you know and, and how that i don't i don't know exactly how real estate works but i know they can show other properties yeah of other companies yeah it doesn't matter yeah it doesn't it's matter. all shareable yeah so i don't know if Lindsay found the house or the client found the house as far as what i understood that she found the house Lindsay found the house yeah now i might i might be wrong but that's what i understood from my research but this is something we're going to delve into a little bit later while i'm asking this question okay all right. Now, on Saturday, February the 2nd, 2008, Lindsay and Jason ate lunch at a restaurant called Sauce. Yeah. And they paid the bill for their meal. It was like a late lunch around 4.24 p.m. Yep. And that was confirmed, too, I guess, from the receipt and all the transaction. But Lindsay also had a friend that was working there at that restaurant. She was a, um, a server there, and she happened to recognize Lindsay and confirmed that they were there. They left separately from the sauce, right? In their own in their own vehicles. Yes, yeah, she, she was supposed to meet these people at this house uh, on, at five thirty. At five thirty, yeah, on seventeen o two, the Sousa Place in Sandwich, Victor, Victoria. I yes. Think. Now can't read on right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the time she was supposed to meet them. Yeah, five thirty. Yeah, and Jason traveled to an auto shop to pick up a colleague. And by the name of uh, Cohen Oatman. Cohen Oatman. Yeah. Before we started this episode, I was even asking you, <laughs> what was his name again? What was his name again? And it was confirmed, too, that Jason was at the auto body shop because it was captured on uh, closed caption video. At 4.29 p.m. Yeah. Yep. Now. This is all tight times. That's why we keep emphasizing. Yeah. Now, it's believed, too, after they left uh, the sauce restaurant, when Lindsay went home to change clothes. Yes. That is pretty much what everybody is thinking at this time now this house where it was located the development was called DeSosa yeah DeSosa Place DeSosa like cul-de-sac yeah DeSosa Place and actually it was named after a guy named Joe DeSosa well and he was there during that time building a house so it may play okay. later on some stuff gotcha alright and like Dale said the street on which the house is located is in 1702 De Sousa Place, and it, like I said, is a small cul-de-sac containing four houses. Big houses. Big. I mean, we're talking. I think this house was right at nine hundred and something thousand dollars, so it's slightly under their budget. It was listed at nine hundred and sixty-four thousand. Yeah. <laughs> so not quite a million, but close enough. Yeah. With taxes probably over. These people that Lindsay were supposed to meet, Dale. Let's talk about them for a few minutes. She had them labeled in her phone as the Mexicans, right? Because she couldn't figure out the what the accent was. So that's even when she get a call from them, that's what it would show up on her phone as the Mexicans, right? And I don't think she's being racist. I think it's just a 
So she didn't know who she was talking about. Exactly. She didn't have a clue. And she would get calls from her. And one time it was just, it was going to be both of them that were going to meet her at the house. And then a later call that her husband was ill and couldn't make it. Right. And I think that was the last call or the way she was, that she thought she was going to meet him was just that woman. But now at about 529 there at D'Souza Place, the lockbox was accessed by Lindsay. Right. So she got there right on time. Jason had texted Lindsay. And he was going to meet her there because, you know, about the concern of her meeting somebody she didn't know and, you know, over this call. Correct. And I think they were going to exchange some papers, too, that some kind of real estate papers that uh, they needed to, to swap or something was going on for another property, too. So that was going to take care of her being looked after by Jason and the papers being exchanged for something else. Right. But the text from Jason said, I'll come meet you and I'll be 10 to 15 minutes or so. And that's when Lindsay said to Jason, okay, I'll see you in a bit. Got to go. The Mexicans are here. Right. So this is at still at 530. 530. 529, 530. Now at 538 p.m., Jason sends a text to Lindsay, and it says just a couple minutes away. Okay. And that text was never opened by Lindsay. And according to the detective, Sergeant Horsley, the last text Jason said was, I'm just a couple minutes away. And like I said, that text was never open. But Dateline says that Jason's final text was, are you okay? Correct. So, got a little bit of. Now, my thinking on this was he didn't think about the are you okay text as being his last text. Right. I don't know. I, don't, I can't mean you know, I've got, I, I text people on my phone. I cannot tell you what my last text was right. from people, you know. Yeah. I, you know. Especially with shit like this going on. Yeah, you just you just don't know. Sorry about that. <laughs> But it sounds like to Sergeant Horsley and Dateline, they support the 5.38 p.m. text as being the final one, as being, you know, the are you okay. But he never got a response, nor either one was open N- if there were to. No. Correct. Yeah, and they said that when he pulled up, when he first pulled up, he thought he saw somebody either, there's two different stories, either somebody walked out the door and then turned around and immediately went back into the house, or they saw some silhouettes of some people inside the front door. So it's two different stories. And according to Jason, that after all this was said and done, he thinks that the the people that were there to meet Lindsay saw him and turned around and went back in. Which is kind of weird. But Jason thought they were just, just then getting there and right, going like in the Right, like the showing was just starting. And the woman is described as being a shorter woman with a, a very colorful dress on. Yeah pretty unique yeah and the guy was a taller guy with just a plain brown suit if i'm not mistaken yeah light brown yeah but like i said the woman had on this really bright colored dress and they even think that she had this on so the dress would be a focal point draw attention maybe and not to her look right or you know her facial features yeah and the witnesses saw them all in the driveway before they ever went in so she's they said that they saw the man the woman and Lindsay, and these people just walked up now from where I don't know. Now, this was one really bugs me. This was a woman walking her dog. Okay. Now these people walked up and then they shook hands and then like, so she's, she said that she thought that would, that they've never met the way they acted. And then they went into the house. Mm-hmm. But it, like, where the hell did they walk up from? This bugs me. Yeah. The, there was no car parked anywhere. They just happened to walk up. Right. As far as we know. Yeah. 
and this was a newly built home so there was no furniture in it or anything it was just a vacant house big house now police believe that sometime between 538 to 541 is when Lindsay was murdered now dale at 5:41 p.m Lindsay's blackberry made a phone call i guess if they're claiming that it was a pocket dial right this is so creepy because it reminds me of that case we just did yeah and they believe that this pocket dial was the result of the attack she might have had a hand in her pocket and just hit the last number she called or something don't you think yeah or when she failed it's, it's hard to tell yeah yeah, yeah. If it was me and I already knew what happened, I'm sure she didn't have a clue what was going on. But if she was worried, she probably did have her hand in her pocket on her on her phone if she had well, I don't know if it was in a I don't know, speculating. Yeah. But the attack happened in an upstairs bedroom, the master bedroom. And I guess they had looked at the hole downstairs and this was this was so creepy about it. Just them people going along with the show and trying to look at the house and then they get her upstairs and Lindsay has her back turned, getting ready to show him the master bathroom, and that's when she's attacked. Right. She was attacked at least, well, stabbed at least 40 times mm. with a knife. Yeah. And there was no gun involved or anything like that. They didn't find any kind of uh, gun residue or anything. It was just all with a knife. Right. Because that would be something quiet, something you could get in there quick and get the job done. 40 times, mm. and it's mostly chest and face. Yeah, and and everything I heard, too, she had just had breast implants. So So. it sounds kind of personal, doesn't it? Yeah, very, very personal. It's just very strange. This case is really strange. But see... Somebody knows something. (laughs) Jason and his... um, Okay, they're outside the whole time. They're outside, parked down the street. Right. Yeah, just waiting, just... Because they didn't want to go in and be like you know why are you disturbing our show why are you why are you here i guess they were just waiting to yeah you didn't want to be overbearing and ruin the sale for but you he's there for support either way yeah yeah so they were just waiting for Lindsay to get done with their showing now jason and then uh cohen oatman they were parked outside the property for about 10 minutes right and then he decided to back out to uh, another street down the, down the side called Torquay Drive right. and parked there. And he did not want, like you said, he didn't want to be nosy or anything like that. Right. At first, he was just parked across the road of the house so he could look at it. And he thought maybe it was kind of, for lack of a better word, creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he moved to, um, to be more out of view. Yep. And after 20 minutes, past 20 minutes, Jason had arrived and seen the couple, like we said, go back in the house. And Jason went to the front door. So it was 10 minutes in front of the house, and then they moved. They waited about another 10 minutes, and then yeah. he still hadn't got an answer. Okay. Yeah. Jason went to the front door and found it It was locked. And when you show a house, everything I read, you're not supposed to lock the door. So, But the door was locked, and he tried to open it. And there was some, like a front door has this molded glass or something he could see. You can't really dip get out details right, just images kind just of blurry, images blurry looking but he look, did see Lindsay's shoes in the entrance hallway there right he goes you know i guess when you show a house you take your shoes off but they didn't see any sign of movement and no one answered after knocking the door several times now at this point dale he called 911 just to get a welfare check right because thumbs you know, up he hadn't heard anything back and 20 minutes had passed and the door's locked yeah now, while Jason was on the line with, with 911, Cohen Oatman found a gap in the fence 
in the back garden and entered that way and saw that the back patio door was wide open. And he called out to Jason, who told the operator that they were going into the house. And Jason then hung up with 911. Now, Je- uh, Cohen Oatman came through the main level of the home to the unlocked door to let Jason in. Right. He'd actually walk through the house and let Jason in. And this is what, one thing that surprises me that I, don't, I hadn't figured out yet, that Jason, when he got into the door, he immediately ran upstairs. Right. Uh, instead of checking the house, he goes straight upstairs. That, that blows my mind. How did he know to go upstairs? Right. And that's when he found Lindsay's body lying in a pool of blood in the master bedroom. Now, maybe Cohen was going to do the bottom and he was going to run upstairs. Could have. Or, you know, maybe he knew that since her shoes was there, maybe they go upstairs first. I don't know. Could've, yeah. It could have been some stuff. Not necessarily he knew, but it is kind of strange to me as well. And makes you wonder if they saw bloody footprints. I've never heard that. No. But something, hell, I mean, 40 times, it ain't going to be clean. No. No, there's going to be blood everywhere. 40 times in just a few minutes, it ain't, so it wasn't like taking the time. And Jason called 911 for a second time, and emergency services arrived just a few minutes later. Yeah, I'm sure they were already on their way from the first call. Oh, yeah. Now, Lindsay was pronounced dead when the paramedics arrived. She had been stabbed multiple multiple times, and there were no defense wounds. Mm-hmm indicating that she'd probably been stabbed from behind and had no inkling about what was going to happen. Yeah, probably cut her throat and then went to stabbing. None of Lindsay's possessions had been stolen. Yeah, no robbery. And she had not been sexually assaulted. So this was definitely premeditated. Something was up with this. Now, Jason and Cohen, they were handcuffed and taken into custody. That's what was weird, too, about this. Yeah. Well, it said they were both in the house, and they were waving from upstairs bedroom when the cops pulled up, and they came in and went ahead and took them in. But when they were all there, and he was doing trying to do CPR on Lindsay, too, so I'm sure he was blood-covered, so it probably didn't look good either way. No, it probably didn't. But they got to do what you got to do, you know. Yeah. It's probably procedure, I guess. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder, too, you know, him being taken in cuffs. If he hadn't put cuffs on and just said, so let's just go downtown and talk about this, get you cleaned up. Would he have lawyered up without the cuffs? I don't know. But him being put in cuffs, me, well, I'd lawyer up anyway. But he, you know, he lawyered up. So it makes you wonder if he hadn't been put in cuffs, how quickly he would have lawyered up. Right. And just let him ask what they had to ask. Yeah. Find out what's going on. So that's, that's kind of kind of weird to me. Yeah. According to the Saanich Police Department, Jason had been interviewed several times, over, actually over the years, and has always co- cooperated with the police and also passed a polygraph. Yeah. He has always refused to provide a DNA sample. Yeah. According to his lawyer, he's never given that up. But they said they didn't find anything anyway, so I don't see why it's And there was, there was no DNA at the house. No. None. It was just, or fingerprints or any physical evidence at the scene. No, they didn't find nothing. Well, they found a few fingerprints, but it was theirs. Yeah. And it was everything they found fit with the story that they told them about coming in the house or whatever. And the only thing that's changed is that story where they saw the silhouettes inside the house. And then 
They said that was the first statement that they gave today. They found they saw some silhouettes moving inside the door. And then nine years later, the story changed to where they saw the man and woman come outside and see them and then immediately go back in. The, so nobody knows why that story changed, but it was like nine years later that he changed it from silhouettes to actually seeing the people. Yeah. And that might not mean nothing, but it's kind of weird. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is, it is believed that the murder was well organized and even a professional hit. Right. And they even brought dogs in, but they couldn't find nothing, get no no scent traces or nothing of the well, mm. any of the people going. And where the hell did they go? This bugs me really bad. I Because mean, this was a neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, you can look it up on Google Earth. That's what I did. And it's pretty tight. And I don't know. This has been several years back, so it might be more crowded now than it was then. But there's, it's totally surrounded by houses. If they went out the back door, they're right into somebody else's backyard. Yeah. So where the heck did they go? I know. In three, five minutes. And the police, when they got there, they shut down that neighborhood. And they checked all the houses around for anything. It's crazy. Nothing was found. Nothing. Now, let's talk about the, the phone call that Lindsay received from these so-called Mexicans. Right. Now, the cell phone that was used, they traced the number. Yep. And they found out this phone was a burner phone. Right. And the phone was purchased in Vancouver several months before the murder. Yeah, it was and in it, November of 2007 when it was, yeah. when it was bought. Well, it was activated under the name of Paulo Rodriguez. The cops even believe that's a fake name. I'm sure. Yeah. And it was registered to a legitimate address in Vancouver, which turned out to be a business. And it's believed that the business had no connection to this Pablo Rodriguez at all. It just happened to be on the address they broke down. Yeah, they just made up something. And <laughs> it was somebody. Yeah. Right. Now, this phone was deactivated soon after the murder. Yep. And this phone was not used for any other purpose than to contact Lindsay. And that was it, Dale. Right. Yeah, it was only activated 24 hours prior to them first calling her. And then they followed it on when they followed the pings that it did actually come over on the ferry like the people said they were coming. But then right after that, it was uh, disconnected and never been used since. So that that tells you right there, this was a planned murder. Very. It yeah. wasn't just happened. And that, planned out for a while to be able to have that burner phone and set that up. Either that or they had just had burner phones on hold. <laughs> just buy them every now and again when you need one, I mm-hmm. guess. But, but yeah, they had had one for a month or two before it's ever come, come across. Yeah, and that supports the theory that the murder was planned. Totally planned. So. Yeah. And it was kind of weird why the police didn't give out the details and description of that dress or that uh, composite for almost a year. Yeah. So it was kind of weird why they held details back like that. Well, they thought that that dress, you know, them being, you know, people looking for a million dollar home. Right. They thought that dress that woman was wearing could have been a designer dress. But it wasn't. No, it was just <laughs> something, <laughs> something you buy off the rack. Yeah, but it was, it was really wild. It was like, it was like what, uh, white, pink, and black, real wild stripes. Wavy stripes yeah. and stuff. And we've got a picture of the dress that we're going to post to so that everybody can get a look at it. Right. But, you know, looking at it, your eyes will be focused toward the dress and not on the dude or yeah he just had on a light brown jacket it's very very flaunting dress right so it'd be something that'd be more noticed than somebody's facial features i think yeah, yeah correct yeah because that composite ain't very much is it no just a little side view <laughs> yeah uh, jason zalo's family they were investigated 
with their connections with the cul-de-sac. D'Souza Cord, like we said, is named after the developer, Joe D'Souza, and he is a friend and business advocate of Shirley Zalo, which is Jason's mother. And part of the cul-de-sac is still, was still under construction at the time of the murder, and D'Souza himself was at the location, like we said, an hour before the murder, supervising construction of some work. Oh, wow. So that's, that's kind of fishy, too. But the police have stated that no one in the Zalo family is a suspect. All right, Dale. Detective Horsley and McCall revealed that in December 2007, this was about eight weeks prior to her murder, Lindsay tried to contact a friend of her ex-boyfriend while on a visit to Calgary. Now, on January the 22nd, 2008, the largest drug bust in Alberta's history took place, and the friend was arrested as being a major participant in this illegal drug trafficking operation. Right. Yes, that she'd reached out once by phone and another time through Facebook. And it, it is believed that Lindsay's murder may have been ordered by a drug cartel because she was believed to be, be a police informant. So they're thinking just because she reached out to an old school friend and then they got busted, that maybe she had something to do with it. Yeah, that's what they're thinking. Right. It was a big bust. Yeah, and the detectives investigated the possibility, but they quickly ruled it out as a motive because she was not an informant and it was just a personal nature of her murder and is not fitted a hired killer's method of operation. But now she did say, Lindsay did tell her father, you know, prior to her, about a month prior to her murder, that she had witnessed something. And she'd tell him later about it. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if it was this drug operation going on or what. Now, speculation regarding another drug bust related to this group was also investigated as a link to Lindsay's murder. And... A guy named Jason Mahan Singh Baines' phone had been tapped because of a high-level involvement in the trafficking of sale of illegal narcotics in British Columbia and Alberta. And during the wiretaps, law enforcement uncovered information that led to the British Columbia's legislature raids in 2003. And Lindsay and her boyfriend's phone were at the time also tapped because of the association with uh, this guy named Jason Mahan. Hmm. And although this theory is interesting, it's quickly dismissed because Lindsay was never known to be involved in drugs or trafficking, was not on the witness list, you know, for anything like that. Right. But now, Lindsay did tell her father one time that when she went to see him that she was thinking about breaking up with Jason. Yes. Yeah, that that relationship had gotten turned a little sour, I think. And He was kind of controlling, I think, like yeah. his mom. And she even discovered that he was uh, selling steroids, dealing steroids. Mm. So, because um, Jason was a hockey player. Right. I don't, I don't think he was a professional hockey player. I think he was like... Rick or something? Yeah, semi-pro or amateur, something like that. Right, there's a rig league or something. Yeah, but he was a big dude. And in, this was in later in 2008, a close friends of Lindsay's, a girl named Nikki, claimed that she was... Woke up in the middle of the night from a call from an unknown number. Right. And she was about half asleep. And she didn't register with her at the time, but it was a female caller saying, but she noticed that the caller had a strange accent that she couldn't place. She couldn't understand it either. Yeah. And she became scared when she remembered that Lindsay reported her unidentified client as a possible murderer. 
and about the odd accent and she couldn't put her finger on it and when she thought you know it was fake now when she woke up she called the number back but no one picked up and she called repeatedly 20 to 30 times until someone answered and the person on the other end of the line was shirley zalo yeah jason's Jason's mom mom. yeah and nikki asked shirley why she had called her and as if with this fake accent yeah they didn't know her did you know yeah and shirley replied that she didn't she meant to call another nikki her secretary right and it's just weird man well this same nikki is one that one night um her and Lindsay had went out on like a girl's night out and they had came back to her and uh jason's condo and jason was asleep and uh they were she was in there kind of telling her stuff about how she was she wanted to leave and she was wanting to move out and she was just waiting to you know she got the right time or whatever mm-hmm. and, and then come to yep. find out he wasn't asleep and he heard the whole thing and just flipped out and said nikki was so scared that she just run out of the house and Lindsay had to drive down the road and try to pick her up and stuff so this is the same girl this happened and then a little bit of time later, his mom's calling her with a weird accent. This is the the creepiest thing of the whole thing that makes me think that that his family's the Zalo family is so, somehow involved. Right? They had a lot of money. I mean, they were very well off. Yes. Even the home that Lindsay and Jason lived in, Dale, it was a, a vacation home on yeah. a lake, and they she just let them live there, and it was a million dollar home. Yep. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, they lived there for a while, and then that's when the, she, that was the first time she tried to leave him. And they, they split up because she's like, she didn't want to deal with it. And then he begged her back, and then they, but they moved back to where she was from so she'd be back around her friends and stuff. And then they got a condo together. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very, very fishy about the Zalo family. Whole, to me, it is. This whole damn thing is. Yeah, but that phone call called Nikki. Yeah. That, that's. Yeah. She's like, how did you even get my number, right? Yeah. And it's like, maybe I got it from Jason. Well, Jason didn't have my number, so how the hell did this lady get her number and then call her with the yeah, fake Yeah, I think that was, uh, yeah, something else was going on, too. Yep. Yep. So, this whole story is wild. Mm-hmm. All right, Dale, you got any more theories? Mm, man, I don't know. I just, it really bugs me to where the hell did they go. It was, it was such a close, close timeline. At the max, it's 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. In, in tight neighborhood, nobody saw them drive up. They walked up, and they said they met in the driveway. Well, if you look up that picture, that driveway is maybe a car length. It's not like it's a real long driveway that they were far away from the road. And then I don't, I don't know. It just it bugs me to where where the hell did they go? And then is it like uh, did he sit there in, in the driveway for twenty minutes to make sure they had time? Because once he saw him, did he? I don't know. Because then that puts him involved. But that's just the way I think. Or is he sitting out there giving them time to get get out? Mm-hmm. And like to think, well, here we are. I'm already running late for you. I don't know. Just, I don't know the guy, or whatever. But it just seems awful damn fishy to me. Now, getting back to what I said at the beginning of this episode about did Lindsay find this property or did? this couple find this property right because this was so well organized with the burner phone and all that Dale in the escape yeah it makes me wonder if this couple didn't stake out this house for a while and 
and see the comings and goings of all the workers in this neighborhood. Because this is a new neighborhood. Even the owner of this this cul-de-sac, this property, was there that day. You think he, him and Shirley's in on it? I don't know, but they. I think they knew this house. They knew they planned an escape route. You know, you're just not going to go in somewhere unfamiliar, stab somebody 40 times, and Disappear. expect to walk out the front door. You're gonna have, you're gonna have a plan, right. and you're gonna have a several plans. If this if this goes wrong, where are you, what's gonna happen? Right. You're gonna have a plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, with this this level of sophistication, don't you think? Yeah, I do. It makes me think everybody's in on it. Yeah, so that's why I think the owner of this property and the Zalo family are in in on something. There's a lot of money there. Yeah, a lot of money. But why, Lindsay? Why? Unless she saw him do something, dealing with something she shouldn't have. Which is possible. Yeah. They all been cleared, right? But she's still the way I think. And I know I've listened to interviews with Lindsay's dad, Jeff. And, man, he... he, He's a damn trooper. He is. He, he lives, Much breathes. Much for him. Yeah, lives, breathes, and eats this case by his daughter. Yeah. I mean, it's in his forefront 24 hours a day. And he, this case was actually labeled as cold at one time. And he, he contacted the authorities and said, look, if this case is cold, since yep. it's cold, turn everything over to me. Yep. Let me have all the records on it. Well, they... Activated the case. Yep. Wouldn't let him have anything. See, there's shit going on, man. Yeah. And especially if you listen to him, he'll tell you right quick that the cops ain't, they're not doing what what they should be doing, and he's letting them know it daily. <laughs> and his his life has been threatened several times over this. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. He so don't he, care. He, he said it. I mean, I've been threatened. I've had phone calls, people threatening my life. And he don't care. No, he don't care. He just wants justice. Exactly. And I, I can't imagine. I would I would want justice, too. Yes, it'd be the same way. Yep. But now, Dale, there is currently a $500,000 reward in this case. And if anyone has any information, please contact the Saanich Police at 250-475-4313, or you can call any Crime Stoppers and give them a tip and let them know something. But somebody knows something out there. Are you darn right. Yep. All right, Dale, we're going to wind this case up. We're going to get out of here. We want everyone to be safe. Wash your hands. <laughs> be careful. and Social distance, people. And always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is The, the Crack, Crack House, House Chronicles. Chronicles.